Hi folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. It's the isolation that destroys us. The solution is in community. Today on the podcast, we have two of my favorite people, Glenn Martin and Richard Bronson, talking about how they each reinvented themselves after prison. They are both incredibly generous and reveal their struggles, disappointments, and frailties, as well as their successes and service in helping others. Glenn talks about his journey from an armed robber to prison to nonprofit executive to founding Just Leadership USA to entrepreneur, executive coach, and investor in gem trainers and gem real estate. Richard discusses his Wall Street life, including at Stratton Oakmont, made famous in the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, prison, and then founding two companies to lift up returning citizens, 70millionjobs.com and his latest, Commissary Club. So coming up, Glenn Martin and Richard Bronson, Reinventing Yourself After Prison on White Collar Week. I hope you'll join us. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer. So I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Hi, folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. We have a very special podcast today. We have uh, two of my buddies, who I, uh, both of whom I admire tremendously. We have Glenn Martin and we have Richard Bronson. The topic today is reinventing ourselves after prison. And these two guys have reinvented themselves a bunch of times and very, very interesting stories. Um, I almost don't have to introduce them, but I will. Uh, Glenn Martin um, went from prison and ha- had a, a bunch of different stops, which you'll which we'll talk about. But most notably, he was uh, vice president of development for Fortune Society. Then he founded Just Leadership USA, a uh, very high pri- profile situation. And um, then he founded Gem Trainers and Gem Real Estate. And he is now doing workshops for people who want to get into real estate. So we'll allow Glenn some time to talk about all that, which is super exciting. And Richard has an incredible tale to tell, his kind of Wolf of Wall Street tale to um, founding 70millionjobs.com. And his new venture is Commissary Club, uh, which is kind of a uh, uh, AARP maybe for the criminal justice world, which is a, a way to talk about it. Uh, but I'll let him uh, talk about it more. So, Glenn, Richard, welcome to White Collar Week. It's so good to see the both of you. Glad Thanks for having me. So, uh, why don't we just uh, kind of go into a little bit of our backgrounds? Um, because we all have um, uh, justice-impacted backgrounds. How's that for a nice way to put it? And um, I think we should just let, like, set the tone for people who, who may not know us. So, Glenn, why don't we start with you? Because uh, we, we, you know, we've, been, we've been friends for a long time. And um, you can kind of lead us from where you were and then, may, and then try to get us to at least your Fortune Society days. Yeah, cool. Um, thanks again for the invite. I'm super excited to be back on the show and to be here with my good friend, Richard, who every time I look to him, he reminds me of uh, Korean barbecue. <laughs> uh, personal story between the two of us, but uh, we get to enjoy some great food whenever I head out to the West Coast to hang out with him. Um, so yeah, going back now for me, I mean, I came out, uh, of prison 20 years ago at this point. So we're going back about 26 years just to start the story, if you will. 
and uh, uh, got incarcerated, armed robbery, multiple armed robberies, jewelry stores uh, at the time, bunch of co-defendants, six, seven co-defendants, um, ended up uh, hanging out at Rikers for a really long time, uh, waiting to try to get a decent plea, if you will. Um, get a plea, head upstate, um, and like many people go to prison, I'll be honest, like I was just chomping at the bit to get the hell back out and get back in the streets and see if I could be better at what I was doing before. And a correction counselor said to me, you should go to college. And no one had ever said that to me before. And I end up at a college uh, way upstate New York, 10 hours away from home uh, at Attica and then in the facility next door to Attica, Wyoming. And I earned a quality two-year liberal, liberal arts degree. And, and you, you can imagine that that was just a game changer for me. Um, not just the degree itself, the credential, but the journey, you know, like anyone else's educational journey. And so come out looking for a job, just like anyone else with a record, having a difficult time, uh, ultimately end up at a reentry organization and a formerly incarcerated guy, uh, uh, George Lino, can't believe I remember his name 20 years ago, um, decides he's going to take me under his wing. And it was good to see another formerly incarcerated person who had actually made it saying, I'm going to help you make it. And he got me my first gig at a place called the Legal Action Center, nonprofit, public interest law firm. I'm answering the phones at the front desk. I'm $83,000 in debt, fines, fees, restitution. And I'm making, I think it was 16 grand a year at the time. Um, but it was a place with opportunity. And so I grew there, went through five different positions, um, stayed there long enough to realize that if I wasn't going to go to law school, I probably needed to, to move on. Uh, lasted about six and a half years and then moved on to the Fortune Society. And I really cut my teeth on how to build organizations there, how to do fundraising, how to do marketing, communications, a, a set of skills that would just uh, catapult uh, my career. And, you know, the one thing I want your viewers to hear before I pass it back to you is, um, you know, I can tell this story and make it sound like, like it was a total upward trajectory, but it wasn't like everything else in life. You know, it's a real roller coaster. Anyone who tells you there's a straight line between walking out of prison and being successful is not telling the truth. And I hope in this interview, we get into some of that, uh, but I'll pass it back over now. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I want this to definitely be about our, uh, the difficulties and the, and the failures and successes and how it's all, it's all interwoven. And Glenn, I just want to tell you that when I went out la last year to LA to visit uh, Richard, we had vegan food. <laughs> so, so there's something about this that you're the super healthy guy eating the Korean barbecue <laughs> and I'm the fat guy eating vegan with him. I can't figure that one out. Yeah, no, we had enough beef that day to kill a farm full of cows. That's for sure. <laughs> so, um, Richard, why don't, why don't you give us some background and kind of lead us up to 70 million jobs and then we can kind of get into what we've been doing in the last four or five years. Sure. Um, first, let me state categorically for the record, I much prefer Korean barbecue to vegan. So um, I just want you to know that. And that's no reflection on the company because <laughs> I, I would be proud to eat either with either of you. Um, yeah. So I want, uh, like Glenn said, thank you for inviting me and thank you for inviting us. Um, and I know... Uh, speaking for Glenn, um, I get asked all the time, you know, uh, about advice for people who are returning citizens, you know, 
And, you know, very often they're people who have had some measure of success in their pasts and a, a certain lifestyle they've, you know, they're accustomed to and what their options may be. And, uh, you know, um, I certainly look forward to sharing at least my thoughts on that. But um, I'm from New York. I currently live in Los Angeles where my company is based. Uh, I used to work on Wall Street. Back in the 80s, when, you know, that was the greed is good era, um, I worked at a couple of big investment banking firms, and I did very well there. And then um, I left there to go work at this small little brokerage firm on Long Island called Stratton Oakmont. And that is the firm that was portrayed in Scorsese's uh, Wolf of Wall Street uh, movie. And um, actually, I saw, I hung out with Jordan uh, Belfort uh, about two months ago uh, on several occasions. He's also in LA. But I, was, I became a partner there, and that was as, you know, certainly as crazy as you could imagine, you know, if you've seen the movie. It was fueled by, you know, young people making a lot of money easily and um, taking a lot of drugs along the way and uh, breaking the law all the time. Um, I left working at Stratton to move down to Florida, where I, along with another guy, founded our own financial services firm. And in short order, we grew that business into a $100 million company. We had like 500 employees around the country. So, you know, um, we were we were very much in cahoots with our friends at Stratton, um, which is to say we too were breaking the law. Um, I made really a great deal of money and I led a sort of, you know, incredible life of, you know, Ferraris and private jets and gambling trips, you know, where I'd win or lose a million dollars in a weekend and lots of drugs it's amazing that I'm alive um, because I discovered that doing three shots of vodka quickly and then taking two quaaludes and hopping behind the wheel of a, of a Ferrari, you know, is really is much, it's as much excitement as anybody can ever undertake. And it's, it's truly amazing that I wasn't uh, a casualty of those drug wars. Um, but um, as I knew it would happen, you know, I was one day the feds came knocking on my door and, you know, they said, Richard, we need to talk. And those are the words, you know, uh, when they showed me, they pulled up their jacket and showed the badges around their belts and the pistol at their side. You know, I, I long awaited that. I knew it was coming. Um, and in a way, I almost was happy that finally it was coming. Because, like anything, the anticipation is often a lot scarier than the reality. And certainly that was true for me going to prison. Um, they offered me the opportunity to help them bring cases to, uh, against other people I knew and to wear a wire. And I rejected that. Um, that I, wasn't, I was already ashamed of stuff that I had done. I wasn't going to you know, add to that. Um, by ruining other people's lives to save my own ass. So um, I was indicted and convicted. 
And um, luckily, uh, my partner and I had paid everybody back prior to our indictment, partly because we felt guilty and partly because we knew we were going to get into trouble and that would probably save our, say, you know, at least mitigate, you know, the whole situation. Sure. If we can point to the fact that there were no uh, actual losses incurred by, at the end of the day, but nonetheless, we were guilty. At, excuse me. And for the record, <clears throat> just like my, excuse me, my friend Glenn, um, and I don't know if you've had this experience, you go into prison and everybody there is innocent. There's nobody in prison who will admit to the fact that they committed a crime. I am here to say, and I've heard Glenn tell me his stories, and he, you know, he's as honest as I am, you know, uh, whereby, and you too, Joel, you know, I've heard yours too, you know, I was guilty and I broke the law. And I broke the law because I was greedy and impatient and stupid. And I have no other excuses than that. So, you know, I was, I was, I was really ashamed and I was sent to the prison and I was hoping that going to prison was going to make me relieved of my shame, you know, and I'd find atonement. And for me, it hasn't done that. I still wait, you know, you're talking about how we remain impacted. I wake up every morning with this. And again, I've done my time. I paid everybody back. And, I, and then it's for me, it's 30 years later. And I still wake up every morning with this emptiness in my gut of, you know, as I'm reminded of decisions I made that there's really nothing I can do about. But in any event, um, I, uh, when I got, I'm sorry to take so long. How are you doing, um, I'm, um, I But truly, I love to hear myself talk. I mean, that's my excuse. Um, I, uh, got out of prison and I wasted several years trying to figure out what to do with myself. And I had no clue where I belonged, who I was. Um, am I a successful person? Am I a home run hitter or, you know, or am I, you know, am I letting my ego again, get in the way of me, you know, restarting. And I, and I have, you know, I'm sure like the both of you, we have thoughts on that. Um, I eventually, like Glenn, um, found a home working at a nonprofit organization in the reentry space called Defy Ventures. And I, for me, it was incredibly therapeutic for me to do it. Um, I eventually came to feel like we really weren't having a hell of a lot of impact, but nonetheless, it was really good for my soul. And it gave me a direction for the rest of my life, which, you know, we we can talk about afterwards if you'd like. Uh, it informs what I do today, certainly. But um, it's, it's much better, you know, sleeping these days than it used to be and not worrying about hearing clicks on my phone, you know, because people were listening in and, and all kinds of other weirdness, you know. So, you know, not breaking the law is, is advisable. That's my first advice to people. Don't. Don't do it again. <laughs> don't, don't do that. Don't do that. If it, if it hurts that. when you do it, then don't do it. <laughs> yeah, I, for, I forgot. I'm glad you reminded me because I forgot that we had first spoken where you, when you were at the Five Ventures. And um, there was a, uh, I don't want to get into any of the drama over at the Five, but um, I'm glad that you mentioned trauma because I think that that's a, a very important thing to talk about. People get home and uh, they can't even, um, they don't even know what they don't know. I, I, I was, 
I was lost. And I think it's really easy for someone who's coming out to look at people who are doing interesting or exciting things or rebuilt their life somewhat. And they want to leap there. How do I be a Glenn Martin or how do I be a, a, a Richard Bronson? But the truth is, is that I tell everyone the same thing is that you're in trauma. You don't even know you need to let this, you need to let this work out a little bit. So why don't you each tell me a, a little bit about that trauma and how much it informed your decision-making and then what you tell other people about that space in the, say, let's call it two to three years when you first get home. Glenn? Yeah, I'll go first. Thank you. Um, you know, I got to be honest. It took me uh, 17 years to realize how much trauma I was carrying around. Mm -hmm. um, I have been in therapy every week for the last uh, two and a half years or so addressing those issues. And it's been liberating. It's been more liberating, honestly, than walking out of that prison, believe it or not. Um, people see me today without me opening my mouth, whether they see me at my presence on social media or whether they know me personally. The thing that I hear the most over the last two and a half years is you seem free, which is strange because I've been technically free for 20 years now. But over the last two and a half years, people are saying you, you seem free a lot more uh, frequently. And what I didn't realize until a couple of years ago when things crashed and burned, uh, which is a theme in my life, my life's a bit of a roller coaster. I'm sure everyone's is, except mine seems to go up higher and shoot back down a lot lower than everyone else's. Um, but I didn't realize that I was still finding ways to sort of ignore uh, some of the trauma that I had experienced as a young person. And I think I was doing it first by the the risk that I was engaging in in the streets. I mean, sticking up jewelry stores, you talk about a rush, right? You know, for better or for worse, it's a pretty scary thing. And I've done about 200 plus uh, robberies when I was younger and go to prison, earn a college degree, come out, and in some ways replace that appetite for risk uh, with a professional version of it. I mean, I hit the ground running in nonprofit, I think I had 15 positions in 17 years, uh, built not just an organization, but multiple multi-million dollar projects along the way, raised over 17 years, maybe $100 million, definitely 40 plus million uh, when I got to just leadership. And really was just living off the adrenaline um, that came from that high and everything else that comes with it that you know I actually have some regrets about now, to be quite honest. I think you know, nonprofits have become very professionalized, very institutionalized. And if you're good at it, um, people engage in heroism. Like they really hold you up and put you on a pedestal and you end up on, you know, doing CNN and MSNBC and on stages all across the country and getting paid more money, you know, for one speech than I get paid in a quarter of a year when I was a young person. Um, and that stuff, even though I tried to manage it and I really thought I was managing it, I can see now looking back how all I was doing was really using much of that to shield myself from the trauma that I hadn't addressed around family issues, issues with women, you name it, uh, throughout my life. And so there were some behaviors that just continued to stay with me as I was building my career. And just like when uh, uh, Richard talked about, I knew that day was coming, I knew that day was coming, you know you sort of know your day is coming, right? Like if you have like this uh, double life going on or you have this other thread of things happening, 
you sort of know, like if you just, you know, anyone who plays, anyone who gambles knows that eventually the house is going to win. And, and so I knew the house was going to win. The question was just when and how. And so what's great is that now I'm rebuilding my life yet again. And I've built this great consulting business. I'm doing much better than I've done even running nonprofits. Um, and then on top of that, once I felt like that was off the ground and solid and I had a few people working for me, I uh, got into real estate. And similarly there, I built a multi-million dollar portfolio in less than 30 months. Um, except I would argue that the foundation of my two businesses now uh, is much more healthier than I've ever built on top of in my entire life. And, you know, I wish you could take wisdom and put it in a bottle and package it and sell it to young people. But I got to admit, part of it is the, ex you know, the experience, the age, you name it. Um, it really, it really has taught me the importance of how you behave when no one's watching being equally important or arguably much more so important than when people are watching. And, um, you know, we can dig into that, but trauma definitely is something I avoided for way too long. And I would urge anyone walking out of the criminal justice system to be as vulnerable as possible, vulnerable with themselves, vulnerable with others, create spaces for other people to get in and give them feedback, you know, healthy feedback. Um, it's something I didn't do. And it's something that people allowed me to get away with because I showed up so well in other places. And it's the last thing I'll say, and I'll stop, is that you have a lot of people come out of prison that come out with a set of skills that just propel them to the front of the line, right? Whether it's the charismatic front of the room person, whether it's like me, you learn how to fundraise or you're a public speaker or you name it. And the problem with being that person is that you get away with all the other BS in the background, right? People just don't ask those questions because they want to romanticize the thing about you they love the most. And so those are the people I would, I would urge to really pay closer, closer attention to themselves and their decisions that they're making when no one's watching. What, I think that's a great point. One of the things I learned in recovery was that every opportunity, everything that comes along is an opportunity to uh, work on my character and become closer to God. So that's kind of the, the model I use now because I really don't know what's going to work out. I don't know what's going to make money or I don't know what's going to ultimately be successful. But if I'm improving myself intentionally along the way and becoming more the, the person who I believe God intended me to be, then things are going to be better than they were before. I just may not be able to define that. I may not know what that is going in. Yeah, I should have said I have two therapists. God is the other one. And, uh, you know, they say, you, they say uh, no one's an atheist uh, in a foxhole. The truth is I was, I was very much, or at least I thought I was an atheist when I was locked up. And unfortunately, I left the notion of God right there in that prison. I was so harmed by the experience. Um, and it took me 17 years to work my way back. Yeah. But, yeah. God is my other thing. You know, Richard, I, I don't know if I, if I told you this when we, when we had lunch, but I was in Allenwood Low with Mark Hanna. Yeah, you did mention that. Yeah. And um, I know Matthew McConaughey played him in, in the Wolf of Wall Street movie, but there's no way that, that Matthew McConaughey could, could have been his is wild and, and weird and wild and as crazy as Mark Hanna really was. 
There's an odd one. He really was. He 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 extricated himself very early on mm-hmm. from the whole thing. Um, Glenn said so many things that that to me were really wise. And every time he started a new sentence, I, I said, yeah, that's where I'm going to start from. And then and I go, no, that's the point that I want to underline and whatever. And um, so, um, which brings me to a whole other point. Um, and that is, you know, I work with people who have been incarcerated and some for a very long time, 30, 35 years. Um, for a lot of people, the whole incarceration experience makes them very wise. And, you know, there's so much time that you are left, you know, to be introspective um, and just to think and consider your life and how things happened. You know, uh, there's a Yiddish expression that goes something like, you know, man plans and God laughs. You know, and I never, ever, ever, you know, people go, well, how did you end up doing it? I go, I have no idea. I'm a risk taker, which I think a lot of people who are successful crooks are comfortable with taking risks. We are home run hitters, or we aspire to be. We're willing to risk striking out to hit the long ball. Um, You know, but more than anything else in prison, I saw that there were a lot of people who really had game, who really were incredibly bright and entrepreneurial, you know, had successful criminal enterprises, and that had they been born into a different, you know, world, they would have been Mark Zuckerberg. They would have gone to school at Stanford, you know, and, uh, you know, led a very, very different life. Um, I got out and... I mean, I, in in a, in a sense, I feel like you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't feel comfortable um, complaining. And for my generation, I wasn't brought up that way. You know, that's not what a man does. You know, tough it out, keep your mouth shut. The life, the life doesn't owe you a living. My father used to say to me. I remember you that know, one. So my expectations of of a soft easy life never ever so i'm never surprised when things go wrong i'm kind of waiting for them it's it's sad in a way <laughs> um you know but i i i um, study buddhism and i am very 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 attuned to my karma and i have a concern that i incurred plenty of bad karma and that that's part of you know, what motivates me to do the right thing. Uh, I want to go to heaven, if not in this lifetime, the next. And, you know, I have the opportunity to sort of change my karma by leading, you know, a a much more righteous life. Um, I discovered that if you're honest with people and if you really come to situations primarily with an open, loving heart, that... And you said something like that, Jeff, that inevitably, in ways you don't expect, it'll come out pretty good. And just, you know, just remain, be resolute in, in, in bringing that kind of energy to things. Um, but, you know, Glenn was talking about after 17 years, you know, in therapy and that he feels lighter or people f- see him that way and freer as a result. 
Um, you know, I've always identified the ego in me and in anybody is really the root cause of all the problems we have. Sure. And, you know, when I let my ego just sort of go and, you know, detach myself from it, things seem to be a whole lot better. But I can't say I'm anywhere near where I wish I were in that regard. You know, um, I don't think I'm that much lighter now. Um, I'm, I'm much more honest and I'm much, I have much less larceny in my blood, primarily because it would be embarrassing for me to get in and out of a, of a Ferrari. And, and supermodels don't want to go out with a guy who's 66 years old. You they, know? they don't? They don't just, you know, <laughs> so stop trying. for. God's oh, my sake. God. Yeah. So, you know, um, I, it's kind of, you know, but do I wish I could, you know, on a certain respect, I love the life. I love that, that, you know, gangster life I led, you know, and it was a lot of fun. And, you know, but, but then again, I needed to take drugs to be able to fall asleep because I was so ashamed. Yeah, um, of course. Can I, can I, let me jump in here because uh, as Richard keeps talking, uh, the word tribe keeps coming to mind for me mm. because Richard is part of my tribe and you're part of my tribe, Jeff. And, you know, I mean, I, the whole country is tribal arguably right now. So I don't mean that in the toxic sense of the word. Um, I'm actually a person who's extremely open to uh, different types of ideas and people and religions and you name it. Um, so I'm not tribal in that regard. Um, but what Richard has taught me, you probably never heard me say this, is, I, I mean, I grew up poor. So in some ways, my entire life, whether it's committing crime or working my way up the nonprofit ladder, was partially driven by never wanting to be poor again, like super hyper driven by the idea that there's no way I'm going to be, you know, uh, mired in a, in a world of poverty the way my parents were and so on. And Richard, as someone who has experienced a considerable amount of wealth, I've heard Richard talk about what makes him happy and what motivates him. And he doesn't talk about that. You know, he talks about like having Korean barbecue with me when I, when I go over to LA and, um, and so it puts things in perspective. It's not that I don't want money. I mean, I'm running a business. I make really good money. Arguably, I make more money now than I've ever made in my entire life. And um, it just doesn't hold the same weight and it doesn't hold the same meaning. Um, and, and Richard is partially responsible for that. Um, Richard and I sort of deepened our uh, relationship at a very, very tough time for me a few years ago. I mean, I left my nonprofit arguably uh, in disgrace, at least that's the way some people would describe it, sexual scandal and all this other sort of stuff. I would argue it, you know, I think the two of you know, you've been around long enough to know that every storm, you know, has value. In it. And it was a storm yes. that I went through, but man, like I would not trade the wisdom I've learned from the last two and a half years for anything. And I, that must be hard for people to hear, especially people who knew me, like right when it happened, I was suicidal and stressed out and uh, in huge debt over uh, almost a million dollars in debt, you name it. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for the world at this point. I'm glad to have survived it. And I don't want to uh, uh, minimize what the impact was. Um, but I also learned, you know, if you live by the accolades then you die by the criticism mm. and 
I was living my life surrounded by tens of thousands of people hanging out with the Kennedys and meeting Obama and uh, hanging out with John Legend and all these other celebrity types. And, and for me, it was partially about moving the work forward, but also, you know, ego gets involved too. Um, and you start sort of looking in the mirror and attaching your value to your, to your proximity to those people. And now, you know, I still have proximity to those people, but it just doesn't matter the same way. You know, yeah. I, I value them as human beings, but I'm not attaching who they are and their celebrity to my value. Um, I much more prefer uh, attaching and measuring my value by whether I'm surrounded by people like you, Jeff, and, and you, Richard. So that's something I want people to hear coming out. Like, it's okay to, to hang out in those prestigious circles, especially if it's like a means to an end or you have genuine relationships with those folks. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I wish someone would have uh, pulled my card 20 years ago and said, it's these sort of relationships that are going to be much more valuable, especially when you're going through the storm. Now, Glenn, it, it strikes me that December, for you and me at least, is kind of a marker of when we get together. Um, three years ago, December, was when you uh, had your problems at Just Leadership, as I recall. Two years ago in December, you came on the radio show with the Babs Rolls, Ivy, and I and um, talked about it, which was a big deal because you had been kind of coming out of a very dark place. It was the only interview I did at the time. I was asked to do a ton of interviews. And then a year ago, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I called you up and um, since we're talking about restaurants and we met at this restaurant on uh, Lenox Avenue, I think. In Harlem, yeah. In, in Harlem. And um, I remember talking to you a, a year ago about trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the ministry. And you said to me, I, I just want to say this is very powerful to me because w w this has never been about money. No one goes into the ministry trying to make money. And, um, and you said to me, one, I was doing it all wrong, which I really needed to hear. Right. Right. Because my, my head's are in the, my head's in the clouds. I have enough ego to not want to listen to people when I want to do it my way. And two, uh, at that point, your consulting firm was doing well. And you said to me, um, that don't worry about money. You'll do it for me. For, you'll do it for love. And that really resonated with me. And, um, I, because I didn't even know I could ask you for that. Yeah. You know, I didn't know that I didn't, I didn't feel like I had enough self-worth even after all this time to actually tell you, I need you, but I can't afford you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Um, first of all, you're the only two white guys I'll be seeing with in public. Um, second, <laughs> second of all, Jeff is very white. Let's be, let's make that clear. <laughs> it's white, white collar week. <laughs> um, that's the white collar train behind you. I'm from New York, so that looks like a subway train behind you. The way you <laughs> yeah, it looks like a station almost. <laughs> yeah. Um, and here's the other piece of it, which is, you know, one thing I learned is when I was at the top of my game in the nonprofit space, um, you become a caricature of your real self. Like people define you as a thing that has little to do with the reality of who you are as a human being and all the complexities that come with it. And then you can't shake it loose, right? Because people will almost never 
have the kind of proximity to you that they wish they had. And so they make up a story about you. And sometimes the story glorifies you and makes you into a hero. And sometimes the story demonizes you. I say we all show up as a demon in someone's story. And what that meant for me is when everything hit the fan, uh, people saw a moment of vulnerability and showed their true self and how they really thought about it. And I saw some of the worst come out of people, uh, things that I thought I didn't deserve. Some of it maybe I did deserve. Um, but I also saw the people who cared and stood on their values and how they kept their proximity. And, and you're two of those people. Um, but one thing I promised myself going forward is I'm always going to make myself vulnerable in front of people so that they don't lionize me and they don't turn me into a hero because I, I can't live up to that. I'm not interested in living up to that. I'm, that's not the kind of relationships I want in life. And I never want a person to not walk over to me and say, you have something I need and I can't afford it. And can I get it anyhow? Because that's exactly who I am. And, and so I'm glad you just said it out loud. because It's just a, a reinforcement for me today that I need to continue to remind people of that. And anyone who follows me on Twitter knows that I put it out there all the time. Like I show my vulnerability very publicly. And this is why I'm saying it out loud right now so that people can hear it. This is why I'm so vulnerable publicly because I never want to be the hero again because that is an unfair place to put any human being. So, Richard, this, this strikes me as a good place to talk about how you were the super capitalist. Then you go into nonprofits and you try to and you find yourself, um, or or you find parts of yourself anyway, and then you decide that you're going to open up a for-profit, although socially responsible company, but it's going to be for-profit. And I'm sure there had to be a lot in, in that decision-making, what the, what the structure was going to be, why you were going to do that, how it was going to take, how you were going to present yourself to the world, how it was going to resonate with you, your newfound self. So tell, tell us about 70 Million Jobs and how you kind of came into that. Um, you know, I, I talked about ego before and, you know, there's something very redemptive and ego shattering about scrubbing toilets for a hundred people and men in prison. And if that doesn't chop you down to size, at least a little bit, you know, you really probably deserve a much longer sentence. Um, cause, cause, uh, cause you really, there's nobody who's a big shot in prison. <laughs> I don't think John Gotti was a big shot when he was in prison. Ultimately, um, I got out of prison and, you know, as I said, I had, I had really no idea what to do with my life and where I belonged and who was I. And there was a part of me, you know, I'm, I'm sure both of you can relate cause it's, a, it's a familiar, experience you come out of prison you lose your best friends you know i did i had my three very best friends deserted me flat out you know and broke my heart and it upsets me even to refer to it now you know how upsetting that was um and I, i'm sure it's a function of the fact that i no longer was the good time guy you know who could say let's hop in the jet and go to vegas and you know, roll comped, you know, and we're going to have an incredible time. 
uh, or, or, oh, you have a business idea? I'll fund it, you know, yeah. and I'll help you and I'll make it successful for you. I was no, no longer able to do that. But I got involved with this nonprofit and, you know, I, um, I'm not a nonprofit guy, truth be told. Um, I was constantly saying the wrong things. I was far too aggressive. I, you know, said what was on my mind. And uh, in my experience, nonprofits generally attract nonprofit people. And they are, and, you know, Glenn is definitely an exception to this because Glenn is an aggressive businessman more than a nonprofit guy. Um, you know, he found himself in that situation um, like I did. Um, you know, I, I used to be rich and I don't need to be rich and I definitely don't need to break the law to be rich. I have no interest in that. And I just want to be able to pay the bills and, you know, go out to a nice dinner once in a while is, is, is my needs. Um, but I want to make, you know, I want to make a good living. And I, I'm, I would never, ever be able to do that in the nonprofit world, at least, you know, in my little slice of it. So I also thought that this whole nonprofit approach to reentry um, was clearly not working whereby the rate of recidivism is 75%, whereby, you know, the average person out of jail or prison makes $10,500 a year, where 50% are unemployed, where 66% are homeless, where most of them have drug problems and mental health issues, despite the fact that 300 or so billion dollars is spent every year trying to help. It, it's wasted money. It's not working, clearly. If this were a stock, I used to be in the stock market. If this were a company, you'd be shorting the hell out of it to zero, and then you'd kill it again because <laughs> it was that bad. And and you know, uh, there I have I have my theories of why it's that bad. But I just felt with my ego still that I can do better because frankly I couldn't do worse. That's really the way, and I continue to believe that. You know, and. If I approach it as a for-profit sort of thing, insofar as there are 70 million people with records and no one markets a thing to them directly, nobody except maybe my company on any kind of scale, no bank does, no housing does, no sneaker company does, no mobile phone company does, to me, that doesn't make any sense. They're, they're so missing this seminal business opportunity, I think, and I thought, and I said, you know something, I'm just, I'm, I'm, why the hell not? Give it a shot. What do I have to lose? And that's, uh, and I didn't think that much about it, you know, because I rarely do. I, I am frequently very, very rash in my decision making. And I always fancy myself as, hey, you're a clever guy. You'll figure it out, you know, and sometimes I do and sometimes I don't, but I'm comfortable in that chaos. And that's what part of what makes me a good entrepreneur is I don't need things to be all laid out before I am ready to dive in. So, you know, to me, it was, all right, I need a job. What the hell? I can probably raise some money, you know, with this and let's see what happens. And again, you know, not much more thought of that went into it than that. Um, one thing I do, you know, want to mention 
um, that Glenn was talking about how he sort of wants to own who he is now. Um, people often ask me, do you regret your past? Do you regret things that you did? If you had to do them over, would you have done them over? And, you know, certainly there are things I did that I regret that were just, you know, I'm embarrassed by, I'm ashamed of. Yes. But you know something? The message that I have for the population I work with, and I think Glenn and, and you, Jeff, probably feel identically, is I'm proud of who I am. And I'm proud of how, I'm proud of how I did my time. I did it nobly. And when given the opportunity to screw somebody else, I chose not to do it, but rather to say, you know, I'm a man. I, I accept what I did. I take ownership and I'm going to get something out of it. Glenn, you went to school and you changed your life. You didn't have to do that. You could have sat around like a lot of people doing nothing, but you chose to use this time rather than letting the time use you you know, which is a familiar expression in, in prison. So I don't know that I would do anything differently, really, because if I did, I'd be a different person now. And, I, you know, and, and that means that I'm disavowing who I am now, you know, if I'm willing to sort of delete all the antecedents of that, yeah. you know, I am who I am because of what I went through and, the, and, and what, I, my message to my community that I work with is it's time to sort of let go of the shame and bearing that, you know, that, that stigma, you know, it's your decision, you know, come out of the shadows and shirk that stigma and take pride of who you, you went through things. We, the three of us went through things that people who haven't gone to prison can't even imagine what yeah, that was all true. about. You know, and I really think that we're not given nearly the credit for what that what that has meant to us and what we bring to the table as a result. People go, weren't you freaked out with the coronavirus? I go, listen, when the FBI is knocking on your door and you've gone through that, it's true. you know, you can handle a lot of things, you know, mm -hmm. and you discover that within yourself. So. I I, I do believe that the government gave us all early lessons in uh, social distancing and isolation so that this wasn't much of a freak out. You know, one of the things I, I was thinking about while you're talking, Richard, is that Reed Hoffman um, on his podcast, Masters of Scale, comes back a lot to the, um, the point that being an entrepreneur is a lot like jumping off a cliff and assembling the airplane on the way down. Yeah, that's a good one. And... and so, Glenn, now I'm going to Vivian Blackford, um, who I was doing a project with at the time, called me up and he said, this guy, Glenn Martin, is founding this um, organization to, to um, turn people who've been to prison, who are leaders in some respects, but really don't have leader training or don't. And, and don't really have access to the resources they need in order to be successful. And he just left um, the Fortune Society. Why don't you give him a call? So I, I, I called you. It was kind of a cold call, cold call because we hadn't met yet. And um, I just remember that I wanted to pitch you an idea 
as opposed to listening <laughs> to you, to what you were doing. I, and, and I've never told you that, that, that I still feel embarrassed about that. <laughs> but what does it take now? Because now you're, you're, you're known in the community. You're, you've raised a lot of money for Fortune Society. You're, so you have a lot of relationships that you have to depend upon in order to launch your own thing. And so people now who are listening to this are either fresh out of prison or, they're, or, or, or they're maybe they're a little bit more advanced, but you have to take the leap into risk. Yeah. So t- tell us about that. So what a lot of people don't know is that I thought I was going to launch an organization six years earlier when I left the Legal Action Center. And I met with one of the biggest funders in the field from the Soros Foundation and pitched her on this idea I had, which was different than just leadership. It was six years earlier. And she looked me square in the face and said, you're not ready. And I was so pissed. I I, I will never forget um, how upset I was at the moment. But then I listened and she said, you should go off and work at another nonprofit and pick up some of the skills you're going to need to be successful as an entrepreneur. And it was difficult to hear it because in my heart, I thought I was ready. I mean, you're talking to a guy that would stake out a jewelry store for a couple of days and walk out with a half a million dollars. I wasn't ready. Sorry. And, but that led to six years at uh, the fortune society. And, you know, I can, uh, you know, I can, I can be critical about what that experience was like. There were ups, there were downs, but the one thing I can't be critical about is the, the sort of skills that I picked up. Um, under the leadership of other people who had done this nonprofit thing a lot longer than mm-hmm. I did. And I knew I could mix my, my uh, entrepreneurship approach with this nonprofit philanthropic approach and come out of that experience to create something new. And I did. And here's some of the lessons I learned. Um, you, can't, you can't do anything alone. So let's start there. If people haven't heard that before, let me just make it clear. I mean, leadership can be a lonely place. Um, but that's for another reason. That doesn't mean leaders are doing it alone. They may make it look like they're doing it alone. Some people are that sort of charismatic type A front of the room leader makes it look like they're doing it alone. I've never done anything alone. Um, in fact, many other people actually did the work. I just got a lot of the credit. Um, but here's the lesson I learned along the way, and I've continued to implement this lesson, which is, you know, you can jump in, you can give it the old college try, if you will, and you can fail. Or you can jump in really big and give it the old college try and fail. So why not just go big? Like, go big, you know, or go broke. Um, and it's the same way I was in the streets, and I just decided to apply that. And what I, what I realized is that if you're willing to spend your capital, whatever capital you've built, to hold on to a vision that even other people around you may not see, may not understand, may be critical of, you name it, if you can hold on to it long enough to get at least one other person to say, what if that's when you know you're onto something mm. because it, because it just, it just takes one person to hold on to the vision long enough for other people to start asking what if, and that, that was the lesson I learned in building just leadership. I mean, the first thing I did was send out an email while I was sitting on my balcony. I walked away from a job making 180 grand a year to do this into nothingness with a concept paper in my hand. And it said that we were going to cut the number of people under correctional supervision in half by 2030. And it's at a time when the word decarceration wasn't even a word. It wasn't even a thing. And I didn't have a penny in the bank. 
And I did everything I could on social media to show people a vision of something that looked like a train that was already out of the station. And with social media these days, you can make people believe it's out of the station. And guess what? People want to be on a train that's going down the tracks. Yeah. And people started joining me on the, on that journey. Um, and, and particularly formerly incarcerated people were chomping at the bit for something that felt bold and audacious for a space that felt like it could be their own. That's part of what, what's attracted me to Richard's work is that he's creating a space for us, by us and for us. Um, and, and I realized that, uh, one other thing, you have to be disciplined. So you have to realize who you are and who you're not and not engage in mission creep. Like whatever your focus is and your mission, that's sort of the lane you need to be in. You can, you know, I just built a consulting business and then I built a real estate business. I think people are going to tell the story differently. Oh, he went out and built two businesses. It's not what happened. I was hyper-focused on one thing and then moved on. And now I'm hyper-focused on the next thing. Um, and then the other piece is, you know, people... People see things play out from far away and a narrative develops in their head about what happened. And usually it doesn't include the stuff that keeps you up at night, you know, as the leader, as the visionary. There's a lot of that stuff. I really don't want anyone walking out of prison and hearing me talk and thinking it is a straight line. Like, I just want to reinforce that. There were many sleepless nights. You know, you have to worry about paying people's salaries. You have to worry about what it's like. Are the funders going to believe in it? Are you going to be able to shape the vision in a way that attracts the funders? Um, are you going to be able to motivate people to join you? I mean, our first campaign was to shut down Rikers. Talk about, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's so many things we could have done except try to shut down Rikers. It's, it's nice you aim small there, Glenn. Exactly. But we knew that if we shot for the stars, no matter where we landed, we'd be ahead of, uh, ahead of the game. And, yeah. And uh, low-hanging fruit, um, high-hanging fruit became low-hanging fruit. As soon as government officials hear you shooting for something so ambitious, the things they didn't want to let go of just a year earlier become easy for them to uh, hand over. And I do the same thing now. I do the same thing in my consulting business. Um, I do so well in my consulting business now that I employ another five people who now work with me. Mm. Um, and then in real estate, I mean, I'm, I'm shooting for 100 properties in five years. Mm. Um, I'm about 28 months in, I'm at 19. Um, this stuff picks up momentum. I have no doubt I'm going to get to hundred. And then I have some, uh, <laughs> I have some ambitious goals for after that, that I'm not, not going to share yet because I'm still sort of putting them together. But, um, yeah, I think the message I want to leave people with is, uh, you know, you might as well go big, especially when you think about our criminal justice system, the more you explain it to people and the more they get it the more they're intimidated and feel as though they can't play a role in doing anything about it. And we got here through a million cuts. And so it's going to take a lot to get us out of here. So anyone who wants to dig in and do something about it, whether it's on the nonprofit or the for-profit side, I'd urge them to say, like, if you want to get it done in as short a time as possible, go big. So Richard, um, I'm, I'm glad the jumping off point there was go big because you had a, you had a big goal here with 70 million jobs and it was a time in the economy where maybe that kind of vision is what was possible it was low yes. employment um technology had come around enough so that um you didn't have to actually occupy a physical space with all of these things um there was uh, some seed money out there that might um 
that might um, um, fund this kind of thing. So how, how, how do you get to growing that kind of business? And when we met, you would, uh, um, when we met in LA, you had just moved from San Francisco to LA. So how do you occupy that space and decide that what you want to be is the premier place for people out of prison to get a job, but maybe even more important for the big box and the big um, employers to have a place they could trust to actually get get, get um, human resources from. Um, like Glenn said in his way, I always advise people, and this is just based upon- It's four o'clock. I like, tell them it's four o'clock. <laughs> um, um, what I have observed in my life is because people say you've had such great success. What's the trick? Whatever. And I, I inevitably disappoint them, I think, when I tell them what I think the trick is. The difference between people who have achieved great things and have achieved great success and people who haven't is the people who have dared to be bold about what they were doing and to take the chance. The biggest problem that people have, if they, now I, my company, we went through a program called Y Combinator. So for the people who are familiar with the tech world, that's a big deal where the, the, the top tech companies go through there and learn from the people who are the very, very best globally who teach you how to build a successful tech company. And you were mentioning Reed Hoffman, who happens to be one of the most well thought of people from the tech world. And he advises that no matter what you do, do it sooner than you think you should, than you're ready. In other words, you know, just get it out there and take a chance. The market's going to tell you, stop thinking you know the answers. Just grab your you know what and go for it. And like Glenn was referring, it, it's almost like the lie becomes the truth. As you build, you build assets and you do it on social media and you write something and whatever, and then people start paying attention. And then one, you know, one legitimate thing happens that's good. And then you build on that. And all of a sudden you've got this big thing and you wonder how the hell did that happen? It wasn't by planning, but you got to just keep pushing and going forward. And part of that is a comfort in taking a risk. Part of it is a comfort in, in living in the chaos and the uncertainty. That is where true alpha performance resides. That is where on the margins where greatness typically manifests itself. So I believe in take a chance. Okay. That's number one that I tell people, stop thinking about it. Just do it. It's going to end up differently than you expected anyway, like yeah. I said before. And, you know, as long as you're approaching it honestly, with a good heart and good intentions, it'll play out the way it was designed to play out, you know, but you got to just do it. And waiting around for someone to tap you on the shoulder and say, oh, can you come in here, please? We have this amazing opportunity for you. It, that, that's not a great strategy. I tell people. And, you know, I, I know you wanted to get into this, um, Jeff, 
you know, people constantly are coming up to me in my work and they're saying, listen, I was, I was fairly successful prior to getting in trouble with the law. Mm -hmm. I, I, I don't want to work at McDonald's. Don't tell me that those are, should I choose between McDonald's and Burger King? That, that should be my options. Um, and I say to them, you're right. It shouldn't be. What you should do is, and get, hear your ego, you're just going to have to face it head on and tell them who's boss. Find out, figure out the industry you'd really love to be in. And it could be the industry you're in, or it could be something new and reinvent yourself. And find the lowest level job there. You want to be in publishing? Find the lowest job in publishing you can get. Because the lower you go, the less of a risk it is for an employer. They'll take a chance on somebody, even with a record. The high profile things are much harder for them because the optics of it are, you know, the press, the shareholders, whatever. Nobody cares about what a clerk background is. Find, find the least important job in the industry you want or the company you want. Accept it. And in short order, if you are really talented and smart and hardworking, if you're all that, it will manifest itself quickly enough. And you will rise within this organization organically, and you're going to end up where you belong. Plus, it's a lot easier to move from one company to another when you have a record as opposed to, I don't have, I have a record, I haven't worked for a year and a half, and, you know, and I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. Take whatever it is. It's easier to do it that way. And that is the piece of advice that I wish I knew because I thought, well, I'm a home run hitter, right? I'm a big shot, right? And I should, everybody should want to work with me. I'm just a distressed asset. You never would have had access to a guy like me before. Now you do. You can get me for cheaper. Instead of paying me a million dollars, you only can, you'll get me for a half a million dollars. Yeah, well, exactly. what? Nobody wanted me for at any price. And, you know, um, when I came to understand that, I wasted years trying to push my round peg into a square hole. And you can't do it. You are who you are. Take ownership of it. And then when you go in there, look who, who's ever interviewing you. And maybe it's somebody who back in the day, you wouldn't have given the time of day. They were some low level, whatever. Be respectful. Look them in the eye. Tell you control the narrative. Tell them exactly what happened. Tell them I was as a human being, I made a mistake. I paid for it, but I'm looking at you right now and I'm telling you, you give me a chance, you'll never regret it. Now it th that doesn't always work, but it works sometimes. And you only need it to work once. But you need a strategy. All right. You can't keep doing it the same way you have and getting no results. Yeah. But I say to people, don't look to hit the home run again. I don't give a shit how big of a big deal you were before. You're not now. And, and as, the sooner you recognize that, the better off you're going to be. Go low and quickly move your way up within. And I've seen that strategy really work. Also, if you're not taking a class right now during the coronavirus time, which is a time where it's very, very difficult for anybody to get a job, much less someone with a record, you're really doing yourself a disservice. There are so many ways now to learn to code. Go to Career Karma. You know, they have all these online classes. Mm. And they have these things called income share agreements. You don't even have to put up money. 
you know, they will fund it. And then if and when you get a good job, they'll, t- they'll take money out of that. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, you learn a skill, you know, reinvent yourself, take a chance. Yeah. You know, you know that's what I, I say. You know, Jeff, in the beginning, you mentioned that I'm doing these real estate webinars. Uh, 30 months ago, I knew little to nothing about real estate except for the home that I live in. Um, so I wasn't a real estate investor. In fact, I would argue that the first six homes I bought, I wasn't a real estate investor. I made so many mistakes. Um, but when I have people on my monthly webinars now, I can tell who's going to make it and who's not. Uh, and and, and the, the way that I can gauge that is the people who are not going to make it, and, and I'm 99% certain, and, and that's, this is usually how it turns out, are the people that are looking for perfection. They're looking for perfect uh, before they allow for the good to move forward. And, you know, Richard just said it, like, it's not going to turn out the way you imagine it anyhow. But if you're waiting to get the right broker, the right agent, the right management company, the right inspector, the right mortgage company, you name it, good luck with that. I mean, 30 months ago, I was under duress and in a huge amount of debt and just had to figure it out and literally pulled equity out of the one thing I own, my own home. Um, And, and pulled the trigger and made it happen and yeah. didn't, get it, didn't get it perfect, you know, got it wrong and then continued to get it wrong, um, but didn't lose my shirt, um, swam long enough to catch my breath and created something. And mm-hmm. I can tell there are people who have been on my webinars now. I've done, I've done eight of them. There are a couple of people who are on the first, second and third who already own their first home and are on to their second, third and fourth. Oh. And then there are other people who join me uh, over and over and actually just have not pulled the trigger. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with all due respect to them, you know, I used to, when I worked in nonprofit, one of the first questions I'd ask people in an interview is, uh, if you had your choice, would you work in corporate America, nonprofit, or government? It actually says a lot about people's appetite for risk. You know, the closer you are to government, the less appetite for risk you have. You want that security. And I still look for that. I look for that in anyone who's asking me to donate my time in them, whether the investment I'm going to make in them is going to uh, translate into entrepreneurship. And uh, one way I gauge that is whether they're willing to just put it all out there and, and dream big. Yeah. Perfection is the enemy of good enough. It is said in Silicon Valley. This is true. That when there was no way in 2002 when I was a Jewish lawyer in New York and tried to kill myself that I woke up the next morning and I thought, I have a great idea. Let me become a Catholic priest. <laughs> that, that, that wasn't your plan. It, 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 there, there were a lot of little steps in between, but the story that, that I tell was, um, anyone who's watching this knows I decided to go to seminary. That was a very deliberate decision on my part. And, and, uh, for anybody who wants to go into uh, faith or religion or for for a career, it, it's not a, it's not necessarily a good way to support yourself. I um, and financially, I was lucky because um, um, because um, I didn't have that problem, um, and I was living in Greenwich. Um, but I had um, left sem- when I uh, left seminary. I went to work in this uh, small black church in Bridgeport and Lynn and I were the only white people in the church. And I wanted to have that experience. I wanted to learn um, about ministry from, from the ground up and, and what it, and, and it was, 
it resonated with uh, with the experiences I had had uh, in the criminal justice system and in prison. And so I started blogging at night when blogging was a, a new thing. I was blogging at night about the crazy part of it, this disparity of living in Greenwich, where like a Maserati is a starter car, and and working in Bridgeport. And I would go on the train from Greenwich to Bridgeport, and I was on the other side of the track because all the businessmen were going into the city, and it was packed. There were hundreds of people crammed in, but there were six people on the on the on the side of the train going from Greenwich to Bridgeport. The and road not taken. Oh, I'm telling you, it was crazy. And because and I was with people who were housekeepers and and um and maintenance people because we were going in the other direction. So I'm blogging about this and just how, what a mind blower this is. And I got a phone call from a, uh, a reporter at a hedge fund magazine. And he said to me, um, are you the minister to hedge funders? And I had never put those things together. You know, the fact that I was working in recovery with all these hedge fund guys and I was ministering up in Bridgeport, but I never put the two things into one sentence. And he said to me, are you the minister to hedge funders? And I said, no, I, I never really thought of that. And he said, well, may, may, maybe you should be. And we arranged for the interview and I ran into the kitchen. And I said to Lynn, I think our unique proposition has arrived. And one thing I tell everybody, and I'm sure you'll both agree, is that when the opportunity is there, if you don't take it, you don't know if it's ever going to come again. It's just the, the line is open. You're the running back. Run through the hole. That's it. And you got to be prepared to do that. Yeah, I got it. Yeah, you just so let me build out my real estate story again quickly. Um, people ask me, how did I end up in Savannah, Georgia, which is where uh, the majority of my investments are? And I always start out by saying it's a love story. It's, it's a heartbreaker, but it's a love story. Um, after everything uh, happened in 2017 and I left into unemployment, debt, lawsuit, IRS audit, you name it, divorce. Um, I had just finished buying a second home there in Savannah because the person I loved wanted to live there. And we broke up. I broke up with her because I actually needed to be by myself. Like I needed, I knew I wasn't going to dig into my challenges unless there wasn't someone there next to me telling me it was going to be okay. In some ways it was difficult, but I needed to not hear someone telling me it was going to be okay. I needed to hit rock bottom. Um, but I mean, a person could take that and have that be the straw that breaks the camel's back. And for me, it was the opposite. It was opportunity. It was like, you just bought this property, you know, the market, you've met a couple of people in the market. Um, there's a range of property value amounts in this market. So you can start small and work your way up. Um, and that's, you know, that's the story of not just my life, everyone's. Mm. You just have to be willing to, to look at the storm and say, what have I learned going through that storm that can be valuable for the next step uh, in my life? And, and so I, I, I want to always be careful to not romanticize the success and uh, have people miss where that comes from. I mean, this year in the middle of COVID, I thought it was uh, going to be difficult enough to figure out how to sort of navigate through COVID. I actually ended up 
writing an article for the New York Daily News about the correlation between time in prison and being stuck at home during COVID. And then when I finally was able to go to the doctor after things opened back up a bit, my doctor tells me that he finds precancerous cells in my prostate. Mm -hmm. And totally unexpected, totally. I mean, threw me for a loop. I went from being on social media, trying to help other people get through, you know, the pandemic and the quarantine to starting to wonder how the hell I was going to get through it and, mm. and wondering whether this was just going to get worse and worse and ultimately had to have surgery, which was successful. Um, but I know even as difficult as that was, I mean, it was months of going to the doctor and engaging in these very invasive uh, procedures before I ultimately had surgery. And the funny thing is, I don't know what the jewel is yet in the experience, right? Mm. But I know there is. And, and I, I'm actually excited about figuring out what's going to come out of that uh, series of months that were frightening. You know, I just want to be clear. It was like frightening uh, in the middle of isolation. I mean, I, I live alone, um, but I'm hopeful. I'm actually hopeful coming out of it, not just because the surgery was the success, um, but because I know that every time my roller coaster goes down, it goes way the hell back up. And I just want to see where this ride is taking me mm. coming out. Uh, yeah. I didn't know that Glenn. So, um, um, you know, prayers for you and uh, we'll put you on the prayer list and all in, and, uh, um, thank you. thank you for sharing that. So, um, we're, 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 we're into the, uh, we're, we're into the last few minutes. Um, why don't we uh, just go around and um, uh, just give our takeaways? Um, Richard, I certainly want to give you an opportunity to talk about um, Commissary Club. So why don't you talk about that? And then maybe a couple of takeaways and how people get in touch with you. Then we'll go back to Glenn. And Glenn, you can give us your takeaway and uh, what your uh, uh, contact information is. All right. So Richard, uh, take it away. Okay. Um, thank you, Jeff. Um, when talking about the bottom falling out um, in, in the end, by the end of last year, we really started doing well at 70 million jobs. We were getting thousands of people jobs and we were actually starting to make money, which was really um, surprising to a lot of people that we finally achieved this. But then the coronavirus hit and my business went from soaring to zero literally overnight. Um, you know, and that was just as Glenn describes and you describe as well, life just throws you opportunities to, you know, address it's all in how you address it and what you make of it. Uh, I saw that as an opportunity for me to do something that we always dreamed of doing to take this huge community that we had amassed already and all that we learned and to sort of double down. And we launched Commissary Club, commissary.club, excuse me, and it is the first social network for people with records, sort of like Facebook for folks who have uh, criminal histories. We continue to work on employment as our sort of tentpole issue, but we're also created an environment where people with records can connect. As we all know, when you come out of prison, you know, you're under supervised release, they're prohibiting you from connecting with other people with records at a time when you desperately need help the most. Yeah. You know, you don't have a car, you don't have money, you don't have a job, you don't have a home. And they said, well, you better find all of those things right away. 
um, it was hard for the three of us. And, you know, what about the, the people with little education, little experience? What are their chances? I want to bring them together. I felt like, you know, inspired by Black Lives Matter, particularly where I saw so many people coming together and speaking with one voice and effectively making change occur globally, that the time is right for that to happen with this population too. Enough is enough. So we are connecting them with the goal of providing role models, inspiration, friendship, connections, the hookup, and so that together they can speak in one voice. Mm. We have enough people. We could elect any president we want, the three of us. We could. We have together, <coughs> excuse me, aggregate buying power. We buy a lot of sneakers and video games and hamburgers and, you know, music and on and on and on. But nobody comes to us because they don't care about us. Well, that ain't right. And we aim to change it. So Commissary Club is a very good place to get a lot of resources that are necessary, but more than that, to connect with people. This is your place. This is our place. Facebook is not ours. Facebook is grandmothers and kids. This is our place to connect, to learn, to have fun, to laugh, to have conversations like the three of us were ha would be having if we weren't on the air right now. So I invite everybody with a record. There is a home for you. It doesn't cost anything to come. Commissary.club. And if you want to reach me, Richard at Commissary.club. I'd love to hear from you. Richard, thank you. Glenn, uh, um, what, what's your contact information and your final thoughts? Sure. Um, well, most people would uh, find me on Twitter, honestly, at Glenn E. Martin, G-L-E-N-N-E-Martin. It's probably the best place to find me. It's where I spend half my time. Um, at least, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but just something quickly about both businesses, um, and about me and, and something food for thought for people on the way out. You know, I think of my life as, as seasons, you know, uh, when everything ended three years ago, people were looking for me to find a new way to work my way back into the work. And I kept saying to people that season is over, you know, like I am, you know, you go through spring and then summer, and I sort of feel like I'm at the beginning of autumn uh, as a professional season, as a personal season. Just got my AARP card last week, goddammit. So I, I'm clear about what season I'm in. Um, and so it means that life is really iterative, and, and you got to really go with the flow of, of that iteration. And so Gem Trainers uh, is an opportunity for me to move into that uh, autumn season and recognize that they are younger people in their spring and summer who can actually benefit from the wisdom that I've gained uh, as a nonprofit person for two decades. And so people come to me and they come with a vision and they come with a dream and not much infrastructure and no brick and mortar. And I help them turn it into something that they can be proud of uh, at Gem Trainers. So people who are trying to build nonprofits uh, come to me for that sort of guidance. It usually trend, uh it evolves into uh, organizational development, fundraising, but probably the most fun is executive coaching. I get to coach really brilliant people one-on-one. -on -one, and I've just started taking on some for-profit clients. So I have a couple of for-profit clients that I'm working with now. It's a great evolution of the business, something I never would have thought of uh, 18, 20 months ago when I started. And then the real estate, you know, I really was looking for economic independence, uh, the ability to 
have passive income and many other people are, particularly people of color who uh, have never really had the experience of owning an asset that throws off uh, passive income that allows them to gain some equity. And if people are interested in real estate, I do these once a month webinars. In fact, on December 9th at 7 p.m., um, having one that is for the beginners, Real Estate 101. I don't know when this is going to air, but they're monthly. And it's a chance for people not just to come on and hear me talk about how I was able to go from three quarter million dollars in debt to owning 19 properties, but they get a chance to ask me questions at the end. And every question is on the table. I tell people, like, I will explain it to you like you're a five-year-old child, if that's what you're looking for, because honestly, I'm an auditory learner and it's how I learn for people to explain it to me very basic. So I'd urge people to uh, uh, hit me up on Twitter. If you're not on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the same thing, at Glenn E. Martin. And I'm very here. I'm very available. Um, I am nobody's superhero, thank God. I'm very accessible. People should just reach out, take the risk that you did a couple of years ago, and ask me for support. That's what I'm here for. Um, Glenn, Richard, thank you so much uh, for being on this podcast. You know, you're two of my favorite people. Um, certainly uh, uh, are emblematic for me of uh, what people should do when they come home from prison, take risks, learn, grow, um, take it slow sometimes, move faster when the opportunity is there. Um, and thank you for being available to other people who uh, are, are walking uh, in these shoes because uh, it could be rough and we all know that. So thank you and blessings to you, my friends. And I uh, look forward to seeing you again very soon. Cool. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist, like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.